in my mind, we are saving birds because they are helping us save life. I truly believe that this planet has evolved over these million of years to an incredible balance that depends on all these species working together. And, and birds are coming and telling us that things are not right. They are truly that canary in the coal mine that is telling us we are not treating this planet well. We have to save birds because we need to save life. If we take care of the birds, we take care of most of the environmental problems of the world. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Patricia Zarita. Patricia is a chief executive officer of BirdLife International, the world's largest nature conservation partnership, bringing together over 115 organizations worldwide to conserve birds, their habitats, and global biodiversity. She is also the first woman from a developing country, Ecuador, to become CEO of an international conservation organization. Prior to BirdLife, Patricia was the executive director of CEPF, a global multi-donor fund enabling civil society to participate in and benefit from conserving some of the world's most critical ecosystems. Patricia also led the Conservation Stewards Program in Conservation International, implementing conservation agreements that provided economic incentives to local and indigenous communities in developing countries in exchange for their commitment to protect biodiversity. Patricia holds a master's in environmental management and natural resource economics from Duke University. Patricia, welcome to the podcast. I've really enjoyed working with you and the Paulson Institute has been fortunate to partner with BirdLife on a very successful effort to help the Chinese government conserve the coastal wetlands in the South China Sea, which are so vitally important to preserving migratory shorebirds that were facing extinction. And we've been privileged to be part of your groundbreaking work on the East Asian Australasian Flyway. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Let's start at the beginning. Patricia, can you share with our listeners what drew you to nature as you grew up in Ecuador? Also, tell us a bit about how your academic career evolved. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, uh, Hank. It's, it's really an honor. Um, we have loved working with you and Wendy and the Paulson Institute team. I'm absolutely delighted to be here with you today. You have seen it. Ecuador is an amazing country in terms of biodiversity. It only has 240,000 square kilometers, but a unique biodiversity and, and unique spread of life. I mean, from the Galapagos Islands to the Andes to the Amazon. But I have to admit that while I was incredibly lucky to be born in a place surrounded by life and by birds and all of these colors and diversity, I didn't quite sink in with that nature until I got college. I have an incredible family that has been nature loving and we would go out and to the mountains and to the beach and to the Amazon. And I, I guess that love for nature got instilled in me since I was very little. But when I got to the point where I had to decide what to do with my life after high school, I was really, really lost. And I ended up, I did a full year of architecture at the university because I didn't know what to do with, with my life. And I decided that I being an architect, I could work with my dad, who was a civil engineer. But at the end of that year, I was really bored and I wasn't quite sure uh, that that was going to be my future. And I was incredibly fortunate that I had a friend of mine 
suggesting me to take this seminar of birds of the Andes. I went to a university in Ecuador that had the American system. So I had to take the, the, the credits of different schools during my first year. And, and I still needed to do my environment credits. So uh, that seminar was a perfect match to fitting in my credits as well as making sure that we, uh, that, you know, I was doing something fun and, and it was life changing. <laughs> Just going to the cloud forest north from Quito in Mindo, being able to see the leg of the cock of the rock that is this amazingly bright red bird that when they are displaying for the females, the males fly about 30 meters. The two of them that are competing for the female lock each other and they just plummet to the to the ground up to almost 20 centimeters above ground where they start splitting again and it's just these flames that you see and this was like you know 5 five thirty in the morning barely with a little bit of light and you could see these flames of red feathers coming down I mean, it was just magical and it completely changed my life I mean at that point I had the immense fortune of doing that seminar with one of the best ornithologists in Ecuador, Juan Carlos Mateos, that unfortunately passed away some years ago. And he decided, he said, don't switch your majors, come to the School of Environment. I will, I will be your advisor. And that's what I did. And I ended up studying four years environmental sciences, which was absolutely fantastic in terms of teaching me of the wonders of Ecuador, of the fantastic opportunities of conserving that life and the incredible threats that the country had. So yeah, so it was, it was a, it was a fantastic experience, but I think it wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have seen these amazing birds in, in the cloud forest. Yeah, Patricia, that's a great way to start this podcast. And, you know, one, one of the things I've really enjoyed is visiting cloud forests in Peru and in Colombia. And I've seen the cock of the rocks, their mating demonstrations and dances and so on. And just for our listeners, the cloud forest is like a rainforest, except it's in a mountainous area. So it's at a high elevation and it's just really rich. Birds, animals, reptiles, but amazing plants. And they call it a cloud forest because there's this great precipitation and you'll just go from rain to dew to sunlight, just magical. Now, Patricia, you are a strong believer that nature can help provide a solution to many of humanity's challenges. And this was reinforced by a formative experience earlier in your career. Tell us about that. So it was my last year of college. I had to do a special project to graduate. And I had, again, the immense fortune of running into a PhD student who was uh, chasing a population of freshwater dolphins in a river that is called Lagarto. So that's the translation of, um, of a caiman of a crocodile. And this, this little stream of about, I would say, I don't know, 60 kilometers is a portion of the border between Ecuador and Peru in the Northern Amazon of Ecuador. So I had the fortune of working with this guy who was doing his PhD student on this population of freshwater dolphins. And I worked with him for a little over a month. I was supposed to be there for a second month and suddenly a big war between Ecuador and Peru erupted and I was in the border. Uh, so I had to be evacuated. And, and it was really, you know, frustrating because we were in the middle of researching this population uh, of dolphins, understanding their behavior, understanding their relationship with the forest, with the flood, with the floods of the forest, with the dryness of the forest. But we had to, you know, I had to leave uh, because of the war. My, my friend and colleague uh, had to stay because he was drafted. 
as part of the Ecuadorian army to be in the border and, and defend the country. Well, the, the problem and the conflict was in the southeast, um, in an area that is called El Condor. It is an incredibly important area for biodiversity. And it was fascinating, not because of my doing by any stretch of imagination, but that the, the conflict got resolved by the creation of a peace park. So it was a very interesting uh, connection of me being in the middle of the border, you know, chasing these amazing animals and learning about the, the, the dynamics of the rainforest. And then you know, a couple of months later, when the, the, the peace talks started, that the solution to the whole process was a peace park that is the combination of the Condor uh, National Park and the Santiago in, in Ecuador and the Santiago Cominas Reserve in Peru. And it's, you know, it's fascinating because we were talking about, you know, tradition and grandparents. My grandfather used to be a general of the army when the war started in the 40s. And that conflict lingered over, you know, 50 years. Until when I came out of that of the Amazon, it finally the protected areas got created, and since then we have half peace. Uh, so nature actually helped broker that peace. So Patricia, many of us are drawn to birds and are sold on their intrinsic value and the need to conserve them. But for those that do not have the same level of connection, how do you make the case for conserving birds, especially given the many challenges we're currently facing? So I. I think that even the most non-nature driven person of the world will recognize the beauty of birds. I mean, they are all over. They're in every single continent. They are amazing. I honestly believe that they're the best ambassador for nature and one of the best connectors. They really connect us to the, the bigger world of nature. Um, when I often make presentations, I talk about how birds are a great indicator of the status of nature. And they are truly this canary in the coal mine that are telling us what's happening with the planet, right? But for the non-believers, <laughs> what I normally say is, think about this. I mean, you wake up, you open the drapes, and the first thing that you're going to see is probably a bird. You don't run into a lion or a panda. You actually connect to birds. And they are extraordinary, you know, animals that people have revered over centuries and the history of the planet, if you think about it, and the history of humanity. They have been, you know, extraordinary symbols of wisdom, like the owls, for example, or strength like the eagles or power, uh, like the vultures. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but Tutankhamun had in his crown the head of a vulture because that represented power and, you know, vision. So we use doves as a symbol of peace and they're extraordinary, they're beautiful. I mean, we know, we, no one can actually say that a bird is ugly, but more often than not, I have to justify that the reason why we're saving birds is because they are actually helping us survive. So they are pollinators. They help us get the food that we eat. They are cleaners. Vultures actually take the waste and the carcasses out of the system so we can be healthier and be part of a system that is actually functioning. They disperse seeds, so they help us maintain our ecosystems stable. And when that doesn't work, <laughs> if that doesn't work, I share the fact that birds actually make us happier. I don't know if you know this, but in a study that was published in 2020, they were measuring the quality of life in 26 countries in Europe. And they demonstrated that by having only 10% more bird species around your vicinity, that increased your life satisfaction of these European citizens as much as, as compared as a 10% increase in your income. So birds make us happy. And I know uh, there was another study of the University of Edinburgh that showed, especially during the pandemic, that when people went out and started birdwatching, their mental well-being was in much better shape. 
I use every single type of argument to demonstrate that we need to save birds. But in my mind, we are saving birds because they are helping us save life. I truly believe that this planet has evolved over these million of years to an incredible balance that depends on all these species working together. And and birds are coming and telling us that things are not right. They are truly that canary in the coal mine that is telling us we are not treating this planet well. So when, when I come forward, I say, we have to save birds because we need to save life. And as our dear common uh, friend who will miss forever, Tom Lovejoy said, if we take care of the birds, we take care of most of the environmental problems of the world. So it's not about only the feathery friends, it's actually them being that tip of the iceberg that is helping us protect the rest. Absolutely. And we're losing birds at a, an alarming rate in terms of the decline of birds all around the world. And as you and I saw in China, with the wetlands along the South China Sea, those wetlands were endangered and they were causing shortbirds to be either going extinct or very close to going extinct. And because birds don't know national boundaries, right? They are truly global, the migratory birds, that the, the birds were a great way to draw attention to the need to save a vitally important ecosystem. So clearly very important. So now let's get to bird life. One thing that sets bird life apart is that it's a global partnership of local conservation groups. I sometimes think of it as the United Nations for Conservation. I saw the power of this approach when I attended an annual meeting with my wife, Wendy, in 2013. I met a 12-year-old Chinese girl who was already an accomplished birder and helped us use a charismatic migratory shorebird, the endangered spoonbill sandpiper, as a way to help persuade the Chinese government to preserve its rapidly disappearing coastal wetlands. But I also saw the challenge you face, how to make sure 115 organizations spread all over the world are aligned, coordinated, and on mission. Speak to the strengths and challenges of the BirdLife model. So I've been with BirdLife seven years. I came from a very comfortable and great position where I was granting funding to civil society organizations as the director of something that is called the Critical Ecosystem Partnership Fund to come and lead this amazing family. And the reason why I came was precisely because of the model of the partnership. So we are this incredible compact of over 115 organizations from all over the world coming together because we love birds. And remember, not all of the organizations that are part of the BirdLife Partnership are bird-oriented only. Many of them are nature conservation organizations, but all of us recognize that role that birds play in terms of protecting the rest of life and helping us turn the fate of the biodiversity loss, right? You're absolutely right. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not definitely the fastest way to get conservation done uh, because we truly invest a lot on building up these local organizations so they can be stronger. And it's probably not necessarily the cheapest, but I truly believe that it's by far the most sustainable way of conserving nature. So allow me to elaborate on this and, and explain why I feel this way. Remember that I have been working most of my life with the big international conservation organizations, right? And the big difference that the BirdLife Partnership has is what you said. These are national, local conservation organizations that are well-regarded and have the legitimacy of working in these territories. They are accepted. They are respected because they are national and local. And that legitimacy to me is absolutely crucial to get conservation action 
action done and being accepted at the local level and for the long term. You know, it's not something that is coming from outside and is being imposed. It's something that is being built from the inside out. And it makes a huge difference, particularly when you're trying to get conservation done in countries that are very resistant from things that are coming from outside because of colonialism or because of a sentiment of nationalism. But it's also incredibly important when you have conflict. So I was incredibly lucky and absolutely in awe when I arrived to Berlin and the Syrian war was happening to find out that our Syrian partner was there in the middle of the bombing during the bombing of Aleppo and our staff, the staff of the Berlin partner in Syria were going while the city was being bombed, running to protect bold ibises that were in captivity and that we were trying to maintain safe to repatriate and to grow the population of bold ibises in, in Syria. And, you know, these guys were so committed and so absolutely in love with the project that they prefer to be protecting the ibises than their own selves. And these partners, despite of wars, despite of conflicts, you know, whether it is the civil war in Sierra Leone or the coup d'etat in, in Madagascar or right now what we're seeing in Belarus and Ukraine, these are people who really love their countries and they want to protect them and they want to protect them in the long run. And they stick and they don't leave and they want to make sure that their mission is accomplished. So I think what makes really magical this family is that power of many, that sense of belonging to these places, but also this sense of collaboration that we together can make it happen. We see our birds migrating, we share them. They are part of multiple countries in different times of the year. Uh, so we have to work together and we that is part of our DNA. And if you think about it, bird life, a hundred years ago was born because of that collaboration, that need of collaboration. At that point, almost a hundred years ago, the RSPB, so the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds in the UK, the Audubon Society in the US, the La Ligue pour la Protection de Soiseaux in France, and the BirdLife Partner in, in the Netherlands came together and said, guys, we have to do something because the trade of feathers is going absolutely crazy and is going to decimate po bird populations all over the world. And unless we actually work together, we're not going to be able to make it happen. So that element of collaboration is there and has been there in our DNA since the very beginning. So it makes a huge difference in terms of working together towards a global goal that is actually saving birds and nature for the benefit of the planet and people. For sure. And I can speak on a firsthand basis about the importance of doing conservation work with local conservation organizations that are embedded in the country and have real legitimacy for doing so. Now, you talked about Aleppo and uh, mentioned what's going on right now, how it's impacting Belarus and Ukraine. So talk about how the Russian invasion of, of, of Ukraine has impacted your work. Well, massively, right? It is uh, an absolutely a disaster and, and complete insanity in our mind and in my mind. But it has been another demonstration of how the Berlay family works together. So we do have a Berlay partner in the Ukraine. They are still there. Many of the members of USPV, of the Ukrainian Society for the Protection of Birds, are in shelters in Kiev, and many of them have been able to get to villages in the center of Ukraine to be safe. But we have had to move many of them out of the country. And this is where the family element of Berlay comes together, right? It's like our partner in Poland, Otop, a partner in Germany, our partner in the Czech Republic, our partner in Hungary, in the partner in Moldova, 
partner in Romania and Bulgaria, all of them had come together and said, okay, we are going to receive these people. We're going to help them. If they are leaving the Ukraine, we want to support them. And it's not only the staff of USPB, uh, of the Berlife Partner in Ukraine, but it's also the staff that have been working and as part of the of the conservation movement in, in the Ukraine. So with other conservation organizations, but also with the Park Service. So we have created this network of support with the countries that are around Ukraine to be able to really help um, these people in the immediacy. But now, right now, we're starting to think about what happens in the next three months. How are we going to support USPB? How are we going to work on all the disaster, environmental disaster that has been created because of the war? How are we going to help those communities re- get reinstated as soon as the peace is reestablished? It, to me, is the magic of the family feeling that Birdlife and the family spirit that Birdlife has. It's, it's how we come in and, and help and put the shoulder and make sure that we're channeling in funding, we're channeling people. You know, we had this whole call with partners in Europe and saying, who can harbor, who can host and uh, people from the Ukraine? Can we offer them jobs in the next six months or some periods like that so we can actually provide them with support? And loads of offers came through, you know, from partners even in Serbia and Montenegro coming and saying, my grandfather has this farm and we can host two families there. And it is that sense of solidarity that I have never seen anywhere else. In Belarus, the situation is a little bit more complicated because the government, the Lukashenko administration has decided to liquidate our partner. They have eliminated over 300 organizations of civil society in the country. The BirdLife Partner was one of the last ones. Actually, we were standing strong, partly because of, of what I was saying, this, this legitimacy, this nationality, this sense of belonging to the country. But nonetheless, they were liquidated three weeks ago. But, you know, we are already working on the second, on, on the way of supporting them in with a new organization, perhaps working from Lithuania, perhaps uh, supporting them directly in Belarus. We don't know yet, but it is it was one of all, another demonstration of that solidarity Birdlife partners from over 50 countries wrote letters to the Lukashenko administration. And during the trial, the, the judge read many of those letters. The letters were not included in the legal dossier of the liquidation, but the judge was incredibly impressed that there were letters coming from Australia and from Argentina and from different parts of Europe, from Africa, from Asia, helping and demonstrating that 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 the Belarusian partners APV had done extraordinary work for conservation uh, in Belarus. It is really hard, it's really depressing to see what's happening in Ukraine, but to me is incredibly, you know, it lifts my spirit the minute that I hear the demonstrations of solidarity and, and support that the Birdlife Partnership are giving uh, to USPB and to APV in Belarus. I tell you, that's really energizing and so good and so important to hear. Patricia, tell us about the Patricia Zarita leadership principles. You have great interpersonal and communication skills. How do you put them to work? What kind of culture are you seeking to build and support at BirdLife? I would say I, I abide by four principles. Number one, I think as a leader, you have to be inspirational. And, and with BirdLife, it's really easy uh, because you have all of these extraordinary nuggets of wisdom and experience and love for nature and birds that you can just start collecting. Um, and that gets me to my second point, that is connecting the dots. I think making sure that as a leader, you are bringing all these pieces together. I mean, for me, I all, often said when I was being interviewed and in my first years in BirdLife, and I would say I still now, 
for me, it was like a little kid coming to a table full of Lego blocks and the opportunity of bringing them together and making them shine. And I think that element of understanding how you're connecting the dots and really making more of just the sum of the parts is an incredibly important of being a leader. And, and one of the things that I hope that I have been instilling in the culture of BirdLife, really turning around this vision that BirdLife is a small organization, that we cannot do things that compared to WWF or the bigger bingos, we're not that big. And in reality, we're the biggest partnership for nature. You know, we're in more countries than any other conservation organization. So lift that up, get that inspiration going uh, and connect the dots. I would say that the other two points for me are number one, to listen. As a leader, I want to understand the different points of view that are coming, whether it is from the different partners or from my staff or a combination of both or from their communities and their governments. I think it is incredibly important to be humble about the fact that we don't know everything and that there are different points of view to different things and that you have to pay attention to those elements to be able to really make the right decision. And being in a listening mode and a learning mode is important, but that then once you have done that, be able to be daring. And that's the last point. I think a leader has to be brave <laughs> and understand that, you know, you're not always going to make the right decision, but it is important you make your decisions in a decisive way because you are bringing everybody behind you and you have to carry them with you. And the more that you believe in those decisions and, and those processes, the, the better they're going to feel about where we're going together. So I would say those are the four key points as a leader. I really love to see, you know, my family together, my bird life family together, working together. Uh, sharing experiences, learning from each other, and just, you know, we're all fighting for the same thing. We want to see birds and nature protected for the long run. So well said. That's what great leaders do. And the other thing they do, which you just exude, and you didn't say you verbalize, but you exude is care about people. If you care about your people and you love your people like you do, they really feel it and they want to support you. And so what a terrific leader you are. Now, I want to get to another aspect of leadership. In the past, I've noted that too often NGOs with similar missions tend to compete rather than cooperate, right? We've all seen it. But BirdLife is good at partnering with other conservation organizations. Talk a bit about your philosophy here. We, 100 years ago, got created as the International Council for Bird Preservation because we needed to work together. So I think that is part of our DNA. It has been always this sense that if we join forces, we're going to be able to make it happen quicker and better. But also, I think that humility, that not one single organization can tackle this. This is a bigger problem, um, and we have to work on this together. So I think there's that element of the DNA of collaboration, that humility. I would say the other thing is, is the fact that we are incredibly vested on science. I mean, we follow our science. We use our science to define our action. And, you know, Facts don't lie, and we have to make it happen together. I would say, and maybe a little bit controversial here, <laughs> I also believe that part of the reason why the conservation community has not been collaborating more is partly because there's an element of competition for resources, which is incredibly taxing and help uh, doesn't help us to collaborate often. But I think also, and forgive me for saying this, I think it's also because the conservation community has been led by men. Mostly. I mean, I, I think uh, women are more willing to 
join forces and hold hands together and, and rather than compete and be the alpha males. So, I mean, I, I've, I have extraordinary relationships with all of the CEOs of the conservation community. I work well with everybody, but I truly believe that I think we there is a need of a change in the conservation movement to get more women leaders that can help balance things and also create these more open collaborations. So, you know, I mean, you know that I know Jen more as well, and I am absolutely delighted that she is the CEO of the, the Nature Conservancy. I think we can do a lot more like that. And, and I think that will actually change the way that we move from competing into collaborating and understanding that we are all after saving nature for the future. You know, I think that's very well said. And I agree. And I've, I've seen it in business. So again, thank you for that. Now, as I mentioned before, bird life has been very active in supporting shorebird conservation in the Yellow Sea and has been an important driver of the East Asian Australasian Flyway. Tell us a bit about that work, what you've already accomplished and what you are seeking to accomplish in that part of the world in the years ahead. So this was a huge breakthrough, right? I mean, the East Asian Australasian Flyway, for those of your audience who don't necessarily know, is the largest migration corridor for birds. It goes from Siberia and Alaska in the United States, all the way down to New Zealand and Australia and big parts of Southeast Asia. And it is, you know, this combination of amazing wetlands and, and coastal areas that help support all of these millions of birds that use the flyway every year when they are flying north or south. It is also the most populated flyway of the planet and it is the most threatened flyway of the planet. And it is one of those areas that requires you know a lot of attention but that the minute that you actually start making little changes can have incredible impact so it has been a huge success working with you guys in terms of identifying the most important wetlands in the yellow and bohai seas that happen to be the funnel and the bottleneck of the of the flyway that so birds that are coming if you imagine where Alaska and Siberia are, birds from those regions come and funnel in into the Yellow Sea and then, then funnel out to Southeast Asia or to Australia and New Zealand. And it's that bottleneck that is absolutely crucial in terms of the conservation of this flyway because that's where birds that are migrating refuel. Some birds that arrive to the Yellow Sea have lost 60% of their weight by the time that they have arrived there. I need that diet, by the way. <laughs> Um, they get to the Yellow Sea and start feeding up on all of these clams and, and uh, mussels and all of these mollusks that enable them to gain more weight so they can actually go and finish their migration trip. But the minute that we start building up on these mudflats and these wetlands and destroy them, then these birds don't have that pit stop uh, to be able to really build up their weight again and be able to finish the migration. So... It has been an extraordinary experience working with you guys, um, making sure that we are identifying with our science the most important sites that have to be protected, but also helping the uh, Chinese government and now the South Korean government with the nomination of these sites as a World Heritage Site. By having that declaration, then you have the guarantee that these areas are going to be not only protected, but in some cases restored. Now, the work doesn't end there, and we are incredibly excited about the initiative that we launched 
in October um, at the Biodiversity COP and in November at the Climate COP with the Asian Development Bank and the East Asian Australasian Flyway Partnership. That is a 20-year initiative aiming to support and protect and restore between 50 and 100 wetlands in and coastal areas in the flyway, mobilizing uh, between 2 and 5 billion US dollars of blended finance. So loans to, to local governments, but also grants to civil society that will help us make sure that we're protecting and restoring these coastal areas through the flyway. So it is an extraordinary initiative. Uh, it is at a scale that has never been seen in Asia, and it is one that is actually very creatively aiming to mobilize enough resources to secure these wetlands. Now, it's incredibly important for birds, but it's absolutely crucial for people, not only now, but in the future, because these areas are going to be incredibly fragile to climate change. They are on coastal areas, so they will be seeing more storms and typhoons, but and, and they will be seeing sea level rise. So can we use this initiative to generate the infrastructure, green infrastructure that is going to enable these local communities to adapt to climate change, also while protecting and restoring these areas to make sure that the flyway is still alive in the years to come. So it is an extraordinary initiative. It's just the beginning and in an extraordinary model that we hope to replicate in other flyways, but also, you know, a very creative model partnering with a regional bank like the Asian Development Bank and really mobilizing the governments of these countries and the local communities and organizations of these countries so we can work together. This is a terrific initiative. And I, I think what you're doing there is vitally important. Now, Patricia, BirdLife is turning 100 this year. What would you list as BirdLife's most significant accomplishments over that century? And how do you see that effort evolving? The fact that we have created this family over 115 organizations around the world working together. I mean, you were talking about how you often see conservation organizations not working together. And I think that is a huge accomplishment. But that has translated in extraordinary conservation successes. And um, I'm going to just say a couple of them. I mean, the Flyway Initiative last year was a huge success in terms of the ambition and the possibility of collaboration and cons for conservation and for people and climate. Definitely bringing species back from almost the you know, the edge of extinction. And we, we have the Mauritian kestrel, for example, that we have worked on in the Mauritius. It was down to a couple of pairs. And now it's a thriving population of a bird that is the symbol of the Mauritius. I remember that because we partners, I was chairing the Peregrine Fund at the time, and we partnered with, with BirdLife. But anyway, yeah. go on. Yeah, no, no. And, and so that's one of the early successes. I mean, we have done the same thing with the Amur Falcon, working with local communities in Nagaland uh, in India. So the Amur Falcon is this falcon that, that migrates from northern China and, and Russia all the way down to Africa and passes through this other bottleneck that is Nagaland, this, this little area in India. And there were over 100,000 falcons being hunted every year, if you can imagine that. So it's like, imagine clouds of falcons going over and hundreds of thousands of them being hunted. So we started working with the community, uh, with the BirdLife Partner in India, BNHS, and another local organization uh, that worked very closely with the community, completely transforming the behavior of this community. And instead of them hunting the birds to, to generate an income, 
turning the tourism and the magic of the migration as an income generator for them. And now we have completely eliminated the hunting of more falcons. The population is increasing and we're seeing that. But it's not only about birds, it's about areas, you know, it's about sites. I mean, we have this extraordinary area of forest in, in lowland Sumatra, about 100,000 hectares of amazing forest in, a, in an island that has seen all its forests shrink around it. And we have been managed, able to transform the way that the government is seeing uh, logging concessions to transform them into environmental management concessions um, that have been now been replicated throughout the whole Indonesian archipelago. And it is, you know, we are protecting this jewel of Sumatran forest, but it is actually that model that can be replicated in multiple islands around the country. Or, you know, looking at the Atlantic forest and, and the extraordinary work that we have done there uh, in Paraguay. And, and Brazil and Argentina restoring key areas of forest that were absolutely lost and creating this little connectivity of patches of forest that are enabling uh, not only birds but also small primates to survive and, and generate income because that's that's the other important thing. The, the, our partners work so closely with local communities that we understand that conservation cannot come at a cost to local communities. It has to be part of an incentive to enable them to continue to grow and develop and have a, a good living. So we have generated, uh, you know, extraordinary examples of growing yerba mate in, in Paraguay that now is being exported to Europe and that is actually supporting local communities that are restoring and protecting these amazing forests in, in South America. So a combination of examples like that or, or the extraordinary story of the Albatross Task Force. In, in 2004, we discovered that there were over 400,000 albatrosses being uh, captured in long lines when fishermen were when fishermen were putting their long lines and their bait coming down into the water and we work with them identifying ways of stopping the bycatch of albatrosses and from very simple solutions like scare lines that we have developed with them and creating enterprises for women that were family of the fishermen in Namibia, for example, or creating a very technological system that encapsulates the bait and is avoiding the, the trapping of and the bycatch of albatrosses, we've managed to reduce the bycatch 90% in the Southern Seas in eight different uh, fisheries and getting the legislation in those countries to protect and maintain the long lining safe for fishermen and for birds. So there are hundreds of those examples. I, this is just a sample of, of what BirdLife has been able to do. And I think the reason why it works is because we work together. I tell you, that is very illustrative of, I think, great conservation. You know, we're winning a lot of little wars. Many of us, those are big wars, but we're, we're also losing some ground and the overall fight to protect biodiversity, which I will get to in a minute. But before going to biodiversity, I would like to ask you about, you know, what you see as the most significant and winnable bird conservation opportunities out there right now, because you're looking at, you've got a great perspective on what's going on around the world. I, I think replicating the East Asian Australasian flyway model in the other flyways is a key, is a fantastic opportunity because you have eight flyways around the world and they are connecting literally all every continent and ensuring that we can work together and, and create these creative uh, financing mechanisms for enabling that conservation and restoration to happen is something that is not necessarily super easy to do, but I think it is doable. And I think it is, we have now 
broken up the mold and set up the precedent that to say that it is possible. I think the other thing is also, um, you know, working at the local level, enabling these restoration projects that generate income that enable people to, you know, have um, stability because of climate change and that help us ensure that birds and nature can have future are, are also something that we do need to work on, especially these, these decade of restoration. And that I think is not, if we, because of the structure of, and, and the infrastructure that Berlev has, we could be doing something a lot more impactful in terms of restoration around the world. And I think the, the other element, in, and that is very winnable, although expensive, is the eradication of invasive species that are decimating not only bird species, but other native species in islands. It has been proven, and we have done it in the Pacific multiple times, demonstrating that, you know, with good science, with good practice, the minute that you can control and, and eradicate these invasive species, you can bring those birds back. I mean, I have seen it. I saw it in Portugal um, a couple of years ago, uh, how by controlling and managing um, an invasive plant, we were able to bring the Azores bullfinch, that is a native, uh, I mean, an endemic species, back from literally about 50 individuals to over 4,000. So the magic of, of nature is that the minute that you give it a chance, it actually comes back. So it's about, I think it is about finding those opportunities to really give nature a chance. And in most of those cases, when, when we give those chances to nature, people win. So it is a win-win, really. So Patricia, I want to come back to where you began by saying when you're working to save birds, you're working to save humanity, to save the planet for humanity. And so where you started with replicating the Asian, Australasian flyway there. And, you know, that that's one of seven flyways. And when you do that, you're doing much, much more than saving birds, because you're not going to save birds without saving the habitat, right? When you look at preserving and restoring coastal wetlands, for instance, as you said, that's a big buffer against the weather shocks we're sure to see. The hurricanes, the typhoons, and, and so on. These wetlands are big carbon sinks, as are so much of the other environment that you're working to save. So again, these are very, very major opportunities as we focus on birds. Now, let's get to the biodiversity crisis. You and I both see that crisis with the rapid extinction of plant, animal species, and particularly birds is even more immediate and every bit is concerning as a threat to our planet posed by climate change. So I think you've made this point already, but I want you to make it again. Talk about the biodiversity crisis as you see it and how bird life is positioned to meet this challenge. So let me start by saying that I see the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis as the two sides of the same coin. They are so intricately connected. They are so Feed, so much feeding into each other that we have to tackle the two of them at the same time. And we're not going to be able to resolve the climate crisis without resolving the nature crisis. So how are we poised to actually make this happen? I think partly because we are in 115 countries and because we're working together and because we're launching a new strategy this year that we're turning 100. I think we are a lot more clear that in order to tackle these two crises, we have to look into innovative ways of protecting and restoring nature with local people, enabling them to have an income while we are 
preparing them and helping them to adapt to the changes that climate is going is already poising in in the planet and i think the fact that we have these organizations at the local level who understand these local communities, who understand these local challenges, who understand the local regulation and their governments makes a huge difference. It's just, to me, is just how do we make sure that we connect these family to work with each other much more effectively, to learn from each other, to replicate and scale the solutions that we have tested whether it is in Indonesia and learning in Argentina or whether it is actually an, an understanding what's happening in the grasslands in Brazil and moving that experience to the grasslands in Mongolia. I think we have the we have right now the tissue that is connected. What we haven't done is really push that to a level of communication and replication that needs to happen much quicker because of the emergency of the of these double crises. But I think, you know, the Burleigh family is ready. And, and I think it is, they, as I said, the tissue is there. We just need to activate it and make it be that powerful network of and force that can help nature and climate. And I think we can make it happen because we work together, because we understand the value of working together and because we're in all of this together. I mean, you know, we cannot resolve the nature or, cli or, or climate crisis in one country. We have to do it at the planetary basis. The nature crisis is more alarming in some ways because it's moving quicker, right? And we know less about it. With climate, it's very, very serious. But we've learned a lot about climate and we know what we need to do. And as you said, one exacerbates the other. They go together, right? And also you're not going to solve either one of them unless we work on them together. You said that very well. Now, Patricia, I'd like to end this interview today, which has been terrific, with a question about what advice do you have for young people interested in a career in conservation? <laughs> I, I would say do it, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> we need more champions of nature. We need more people uh, and, and younger and smarter people to help us with this, because as I said, it's much bigger than, than just one organization and we need more, more boots on the ground, more creative thinking. I would say if people are considering career in conservation, what worked incredibly well for me and I feel incredibly lucky is to have people that have been extraordinary mentors, um, you know, from my ornithology professor when I started in college to, you know, you and Wendy, uh, to people who are, you know, extraordinary examples and mentors. I think rely on them. Remember that they are willing to help. Remember that they're willing to give you a hand. And yes, the conservation career is sometimes incredibly frustrating because you feel that you are, you're making two steps ahead and then suddenly you're going backwards three steps. Uh, but I think it is incredibly gratifying to see uh, when you win these little uh, battles that it is possible that, you know, that you are able to engage with these local people, that you are able to work with these fishermen, that you're able to see these forests coming back to life and these birds coming back. And uh, you, it, it's incredibly gratifying. So it's hard work. I cannot uh, deny that, but it's also incredibly fulfilling. And there's always people there uh, who are willing to tend you a hand. And, um, you know, I love to mentor young conservationists. I, it's, I think it is only fair. I would recommend to whoever who's wanting to go into this field to do it and, and to find people who can help you along the way and don't be shy. Well, Patricia, thank you. This has been absolutely terrific. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. And what I really like is emphasizing your first 
a principle of leadership, which is be inspirational, right? And you've been inspirational today. So for at a time when we look at these giant problems we have, you've given people plenty of cause for optimism and inspiration. And so again, thank you for, for giving us not only an understanding of the huge challenges we face, but some positive ideas, uh, inspirational ideas on the way forward. So thank you. No, thanks so much for having me. And it's been an honor, Hank, really. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.